a robbery at 8 in the morning, a thief more interested in phones and laptops than cash. Focus on asking for a password. I was like looking him in the eye and be like, sorry, I can't. Because I knew that I have very important data information in my phone. That's what marked the attack of an NTD reporter outside her apartment complex, where she was robbed at gunpoint. It sounds actually pretty targeted to me. Was the armed attack random, or is it related to a story she's working on? And could the latest incident have been orchestrated by the Chinese Communist Party? What do you think? Comment below and subscribe if you haven't already. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Ellie Hart, in for Tiffany Meyer. A robbery committed in broad daylight. A reporter with NTD was robbed at gunpoint right outside her apartment complex over the weekend. The armed attack raising concerns about whether she was targeted at random or if it was something more. Let's take a closer look. In the southwest area of Washington, D.C., just as NTD's White House reporter Iris Tao stepped outside her building. And this person approached me and just, um, when I made eye contact with him, he was already pulling out a gun. And then he pointed it at me and asked, oh, give me your phone, give me your phone. She was and confronted by a black man covered in black from head to toe with a handgun at around 8.30 in the morning. Then he snatched her phone right out of her pocket and demanded her wallet and laptop. Tao maintained she only had books with her. After that, the man asked for her phone password. I was like looking him in the eye and be like, sorry, I can't. Because I knew that I have very important data information in my phone. Tao refused to give her passcode out. And then he smacked it in my face with his gun and then he ran away. And then that's when I started yelling, help, help, help. And then two neighbors came out to help me call the police. As a way of Tao covers Chinese politics and current events in Washington for NTD. Public safety advisor Jim Fuda says the incident doesn't seem just like a random robbery. It sounds actually pretty targeted to me, uh, especially that time of day. Uh, somebody dressed the way they were, uh, mask, all that along with it. In contrast uh, to so most cases, the man seemed more interested in her phone and laptop than cash, and he somehow knew she carried them, even though they weren't visible from the outside. Fuda says robberies typically occur when it's dark outside to help conceal the crime. Beyond that, most thieves just wipe the data from a stolen phone and resell it. And do not ask for a PIN number or password to get into the device. They want to keep the phone themselves, but it doesn't make sense with, to me because of the, you know, the phones can easily be tracked. If you charge it, you, you know, uh, many cases are solved uh, like this. One, what, had she been stalked prior, which a lot of media people do. I started to more worry about if there's any, like, you know, CCP or Chinese government related factors behind it, because, you know, it has happened to our media employees before where they were stalked and then subsequently attacked. Um, you know, their computers sought after, their data wanted. So Tao came back from the attack with only a slight injury, but that wasn't the case for Sarah Leong, a Hong Kong reporter for NTD's sister media, The Epic Times. She was attacked by a bat-wielding man outside her apartment building in 2021. The assault was believed to have been orchestrated by the Chinese Communist Party to silence independent reporting. Prior to the attack, Leong had been stalked by two men. Both their faces were partially obscured by masks. For Tao, the armed robbery happened just three days after she attended a White House press briefing. Does the U.S. believe that new number by the Chinese government saying that there's been 70 cases? The Chinese, uh, they have not been fully transparent. Um, and we the whole Chinese government, one thing they're afraid of the most right now is for any foreign country or, you know, even Chinese citizens to find out about a real COVID outbreak situation in China. Asking that question, I think the Chinese government has definitely, you know, noticed it. 
NTD and the Epic Times have both drawn the ire of Beijing for their unfiltered reporting, especially on the numerous human rights abuse and corruption accusations against the CCP. Before Tao lost access to her phone's location, the man's location pinged inside a building about 15 minutes away by car. Police suspect the man lives nearby, since he would have needed security access to enter the building. Washington is taking its restrictions on Chinese tech a step further. The Biden administration has stopped approving certain export licenses for U.S. companies. The decision blocks those companies from exporting most items to China's Huawei. A person familiar with the matter said the move is part of a new formal policy to prohibit shipping specific items to Huawei. Banned items would include technology below the 5G level, like 4G items, plus Wi-Fi 6 and 7, artificial intelligence, high-performance computing, and cloud items. What's more, reports say that now licenses that may have been approved earlier, like for 4G chips that can't be used for 5G, are getting denied. The U.S. has restricted exports of 5G-related gear and other technology to Huawei for years. But the Commerce Department has given some American firms licenses to sell certain goods to the company. But reports of the shift struck a chord with Beijing. Here's what a Chinese foreign ministry spokesman said Tuesday in Beijing. China firmly opposes the U.S. generalizing the notion of national security and abusing state power to unreasonably suppress Chinese companies. This practice violates the principles of market economy and international economic and trade rules. Some White House officials are reportedly weighing a bigger decision, whether to block Huawei from all of its U.S. suppliers, including microchip makers Intel and Qualcomm. It would prove the next step in efforts to cut off Huawei's ability to buy or design the chips that power most of its products. Huawei has long been suspected of operating under Beijing's directives and of assisting the Chinese military. For that reason, American officials placed Huawei on a trade blacklist in 2019, citing national security. Huawei declined to comment to the press. In Western Canada, citizens are fending off Beijing's arm of control and saying no to China's network of overseas police outposts. Activists warn that these agencies are being used to track and harass dissidents. Here's what's happening. Vancouver residents rallied last Friday against an alleged Chinese police station set up in the city. I care about uh, Canadian democracy and freedom. The CCP is the biggest threat to freedom and democracy in the world. We've got to protect our sovereignty. People come here to become free. They came here to be safe. The very brutal Chinese Communist Party to reach out here, that's a bit of a problem. Demonstrators gathered around a property maintained by the Wenzhou Friendship Society. The agency is one of the Chinese regime's so-called overseas service centers. According to Spain-based NGO Safeguard Defenders, more than 100 of the agencies operate worldwide. These groups claim to help Chinese citizens living abroad with passport services, but maintain close ties with Chinese police. Its former and current presidents have very close ties to the Chinese Communist Party. It is also stationed overseas by the Chinese Public Security Bureau. Human rights groups accuse those outposts of cracking down on dissidents and spying for Beijing. Safeguard Defenders estimates that between April 2021 and July 2022, more than 200,000 overseas Chinese nationals were forcibly returned to China to face criminal charges. Threat tactics include harassing and intimidating the target's family members. They're very good at getting close to the line and not crossing the line. The RCMP seem to indicate they need new laws or guidelines or policies in this regard. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police are looking into several of the outposts across the nation. Outside Canada, another alleged police outpost is located in Manhattan, New York. The FBI searched the facility last fall. 
Similar investigations are underway in over 10 countries, including Ireland and the Netherlands. The U.S. promising to send more advanced weapons to South Korea, like fighter jets and bombers. The two countries would also strengthen joint military training and drills. That's according to U.S. Defense Chief Lloyd Austin. He's in South Korea on Tuesday, meeting the country's president and defense counterpart. Washington is reaffirming its security commitment to the key ally in the face of a growing threat from North Korea. Austin and President Yoon discussed regional issues including the security situation on the Korean Peninsula, extended nuclear deterrence, and trilateral security cooperation with Japan. Seoul's presidential office gave the details in a statement. Uh, the U.S. commitment uh, to the defense of Korea is ironclad. You heard, heard us say that a number of times, but that's just not a slogan. It is what, what we're all about. The threat from the North has been on the rise. North Korea fired a record number of missiles last year, including warheads capable of reaching the continental United States. News broke earlier that the U.S. and South Korea have been holding nuclear talks. South Korea said both countries discussed potential joint exercises using U.S. nuclear assets. South Korea doesn't have its own nuclear weapons, but the country is under a U.S. protection agreement called the Nuclear Umbrella. It means Washington would use means, including nuclear weapons, to defend South Korea if needed. Back to Austin's trip. The leaders pledged to expand military drills and boost nuclear deterrence. Japan and NATO pledging to bolster ties. The head of NATO saying Russia's war on Ukraine has created the most tense security environment since World War II. Beijing is watching closely and learning lessons that may influence its future decisions. What is happening in Europe today could happen in East Asia tomorrow. So we must remain united and firm, standing together for freedom and democracy. Stoltenberg met Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida in Tokyo. Discussions covered Russia's nuclear threats, China's and Russia's joint drills near Japan, and North Korea's nuclear weapons development. Stoltenberg called out China on several concerns, expanding its nuclear arsenal threatening Taiwan and spreading misinformation about NATO and the Ukraine war. He noted, quote, China is not our adversary, but we must understand the scale of challenge and work together to address it. Meanwhile, Japan has expanded military ties with Britain, Europe and NATO, amid growing threats from Beijing and North Korea. Today, we committed to further elevate Japan-NATO cooperation in order to maintain and strengthen the rules-based, free and open international order. The two leaders agreed to approve cooperation in areas from cyberspace to space exploration to critical and emerging technologies. The Czech Republic's new president, breaking a diplomatic taboo from China. He held a phone call with Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen on Monday becoming the first elected European head of state to speak with the island's leader directly. Beijing's anger soon followed the move. On Tuesday, China's foreign ministry condemned Czech president-elect Petr Pavel, saying he ignored Beijing's repeated attempts to dissuade him. Leaders of the European Union don't usually deal with Taiwanese authorities head-on. They often limit official exchanges to civil servants and keep dialogue under the radar. But Taiwan has been getting more international attention lately due to escalating military threats from China. Beijing claims a self-ruled island as its own and has vowed to take it over, by force if necessary. Monday's call signaled a diplomatic breakthrough for Taiwan, which has no formal relations with the Czech Republic. Monday's call signaled a diplomatic breakthrough for Taiwan, 
which has no formal relations with the Czech Republic. Beijing regularly criticizes visits by foreign lawmakers to the island, but a call between Tsai and another head of state is rare. In 2016, U.S. President-elect Donald Trump also spoke by phone with Tsai, setting off a storm by protest from Beijing. Also on Monday, China urged what is called relevant U.S. lawmakers not to visit Taiwan, amid reports of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's planned trip there this spring. According to a Monday report, the Pentagon is preparing for McCarthy to visit to Taiwan later this year. Germany says it needs more lithium and wants to catch up with Beijing's huge investment in the South American mining sector. At the same time, Berlin looking to reduce dependence on China. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced a new expanded commodities partnership with Chile on Sunday. As he toured South America, like much of the world, Berlin is working to transition to a greener economy. And zooming in on Germany's strong auto industry, producing clean energy cars needs lithium. The ultralight metal is key to making batteries for electric vehicles. When it comes to getting those raw materials, Scholz believes working more closely with Chile could be the solution. He hopes to gain better access to key minerals in the South American country. Germany has fallen behind in the race for key minerals. It's caused a reliance on China, which already has a strong foothold and resource-rich South America's mining sector. We want to support Chile on its way to becoming a sustainable mining country, which is why we not only renewed our resource partnership, but also expanded it and added aspects of sustainability, which are so important for the future viability of our planet. Argentina, Chile and Bolivia make up what's called the lithium triangle and control much of the globe's raw lithium resources. I am very happy to strengthen our relations. It's a pride for the Chilean state, the fact that Germany is worried for what's taking place in the south of our America. Factors like rising demand and geopolitical concerns are driving Germany to better secure and diversify its supplies. Chinese battery maker CATL recently built a second plant in central Germany and aims to have six production lines running this year. The company is slated to become Europe's largest battery maker once its facility in Hungary reaches full capacity in the coming years. The Germany-based plant can produce 30 million cells a year, enough to power about 350,000 electric cars. Approval to raise that capacity is expected in June. But Asia's battery dominance in Europe has raised concerns in political circles, drawing attention to dependence on foreign manufacturers for key technology. These fears are especially pronounced in Germany. The country is now developing a strategy aimed at reducing reliance on China. Currently, Beijing is the country's largest trading partner. Coming up, thousands of Cubans have been protesting since July 2020, calling for an end to communism. But what exactly is happening there? And what does it have to do with socialism in the U.S.? American Thought Leaders host Jan Yakolek sat down with Orlando Gutierrez Boronat, spokesperson for the Cuban Democratic Directorate, to find out. Those details after the break, here in China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Ellie Hart, in for Tiffany Meyer. Next, we zoom in on the communist island in America's backyard, Cuba. Thousands of people in the country have been protesting against the regime since July 2020, demanding an end to communism. Orlando Gutierrez Boronat is a spokesperson for the Cuban Democratic Directorate. He spent decades raising awareness about the brutal reality of living under the Cuban regime. 
American thought leader's host Jan Jekalek spoke to him about what's happening and why the Cuban Revolution paved the way for socialism in the U.S. Here's what he had to say. Well, I think the big news in Cuba is that there is a sustained citizen uprising against the tyrannical regime, the totalitarian regime, which Cuba is suffering from. Since July 11, 2021, thousands of Cubans have gone out publicly to protest against the regime, especially young artists, women, youth, demanding change, demanding the end of communism. They're fighting for their life and they're fighting for their freedom. And it's there, the videos are there, the political prisoners are there, hundreds of people have been arrested and imprisoned. Cuba has 122 women who are political prisoners. It's the country in the world with the greatest number of political prisoners per capita. And there's a deep desire to change the regime. Why so many women? When you look at Cuban birth rates after communism took over, when you look at the level of exodus, over 200,000 Cubans have arrived in the U.S. since January of 2022. When you look at the collapse of infrastructure, at the collapse of the economy, they're killing that nation state. They're killing the, the Cuban nation. And I think that women perceive this uh, in a very intuitive and profound way. They know that their children, their families, their communities are being wiped out. And they've taken the lead in trying to save the country by organizing communities for civic resistance against the regime. You don't seem to hear a lot about this these days. I mean, there were these large protests over a year ago now, right? That did get some general coverage, but you know, I think a lot of people today could be forgiven for not realizing even there's anything going on. There's been large protests taking place even after last year mm -hmm. uh, against the regime. This summer was full of protests throughout Cuba, but there seems to be a blackout, a literal blackout on what's going on in Cuba with the citizen defiance of the regime. Any thoughts on why that is? I think that uh, one of the main reasons is that Cuba is iconic to the left. Cuba is supposed to be the model of the successful socialist revolution, and it's not that at all. It's a highly repressive regime that has downgraded the lives uh, of Cubans, that has destroyed living standards in that country, that has created a crisis for, for the Cuban population. But that regime has a very good propaganda machine in its favor, and it's not just entirely Cuban, it's also international. And the regime is the platform for the expansion of communist tyranny throughout Latin America, in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, in Bolivia, and now perhaps also in Chile, in Colombia. This regime is essential for the spread of these ideas and of the creation of totalitarian uh, advocates throughout the, the, the hemisphere. So I think it's very convenient to many powers that be, Russia, China, and others here in the United States, that that regime uh, maintains the illusion of having been successful. Let's go back a little bit into history here. You know, you're the author of uh... Of a, of a wonderful book that I've been reading about Cuba. What was it like before the revolution, for example? I can say this. In 1898, when the Cuban-Spanish-American War ended, Cuba was devastated. Um, Cuba had been a very profitable colony for Spain because of sugar production and tobacco production. And the wars of independence resulted in 200,000 Cubans dying and the, the country's economic infrastructure destroyed. So the Cubans, the Cuban leadership, the Cuban independence leadership, which took over Cuba in 1902 after an American occupation, which was a very good occupation, did a lot of good for the country, uh, faced a country that was still in, in a dire state. Between 1902 and 10 years later, uh, 1912, 1922, the Cuban economy boomed. 
Cuban living standard, standards experienced uh, a spike in improvement and growth in literacy rates, uh, hygiene, uh, education, they all increased dramatically because to a great degree, Cubans put their best effort to rebuilding their country in freedom. There were political crises, um, there were conflicts between political parties, but the economy of the country, the social growth remained very steady and very even. And it was done within a model of trying to build a uh, rule of law within respect for individual freedom, respect for religious, uh, spirituality and all its expressions. So Cuba grew very swiftly. What occurred was that there was a, an institutional and political crisis in the late 50s with the military government taking over. That led to an insurrection and Castro and his acolytes took control of the country with great support from American liberals um, in, every, in every way you can imagine. And the myth began to be constructed that this country had risen from a medieval state to great progress through socialism and communism, which is completely the, 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 the opposite of what really happened. What happened was that a country that was, that was flourishing, that was about to take off in the development stage, collapsed under a communist regime. An excellent book that I read last year was called The Great Lady Wink by Ashley Rinsberg. And one of the things he talks about is how, you know, essentially a New York Times journalist, whose name escapes my, my mind right now, essentially made Fidel Castro into a hero. I mean, the guy was so pro-Castro and so pro-communist, he eventually was kind of fired. It was just, it was actually even too much for the New York Times. But, um, but apparently on his first visit to America, Fidel spent a, went back to the New York Times, spent a lot of time there and actually apparently thanked them for their apparent support. I, I don't know, even know what to make of that. Herbert Matthews mm -hmm. was essential in building the Castro myth. He went up into the mountains of the Sierra Maestra when Castro barely had 20 people following him, and they built that into that he already had, had an army of hundreds uh, for, for the consumption of the, the U.S. public. So Herbert Matthews was very important. But that, that tour of the U.S. that you mentioned in 1959 by Castro, a public relations firm in the U.S. set that up. Who paid for that firm? Who paid for that tour of the U.S. by Castro, which presented him as a democratic reformist who was anti-communist and pro-American? All that was false. They were already building a communist state in Cuba, and it's very clear in Che Guevara's writings. The purpose of that was to create a platform through which to create a socialist revolution in the U.S. and in Latin America. Through um, a combination of planning and preparation, by the Cuban Communist Party and the U.S. Communist Party and other left-wing forces, an opportunity that, that emerged, Cuba became the fact for socialism in Latin America. Um, and I think that that's why, to this day, there's still an attempt to protect that regime from any bad publicity it generates itself. Marcuse clearly states in his essay on liberation that the Cuban Revolution was essential for socialism in the, in the U.S. Um, and when you see that the role of that regime uh, since it took power. It's been a place to train U.S. left-wing activists, to indoctrinate, to create underground cells and espionage networks in the U.S., to facilitate throughout the region any kind of activity aimed at, at, uh, at opposing America's plans and at subverting democracies throughout the region. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Ellie Hart. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.